You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are thrilled to get to talk to you, Professor Alexander Shashko, a UW-Madison alumni and lecturer in the Department of Afro-American Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Shashko teaches three very popular courses at UW-Madison, Race in American Politics, From the New Deal to the New Right, Hip-Hop and Contemporary American Society, as well as Black Music and American Cultural History. We've been wanting to talk to Professor Shashko about his research connecting music and history in the U.S., especially in the context of black music and the history of racism and race relations in American political culture. Additionally, Professor Shashko is a voting member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Shashko. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate being here today. Just to start off, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself um, as a teacher and as a professor, as a person, as a, a music consumer? Sure. My name is Alexander Shashko. I have been a lecturer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison for about 15 years or so. I am a Wisconsin native. I grew up in Shorewood, Wisconsin, the suburb of Milwaukee, and uh, attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison as an undergraduate. So it's one of the great privileges of my uh, life to be able to teach at my alma mater. It's a little surreal sometimes to be teaching in the rooms where I was a student, but uh, it's really a great pleasure to do that. My area of interest is history and American history, but I teach in the Afro-American Studies program. And what I really teach about is the relationship between music and you know culture more broadly politics and race relations how do those worlds interact with one another so the three classes that i teach on a regular basis are race and politics from the new deal to the new right which is a you know pretty strictly political and social history of uh 20th century african-american social movements and then uh i teach two classes on music black music and american cultural history and uh, hip-hop and contemporary american society that, uh, that's uh 272, 156, and 154. And uh, it's really a joy to teach them. Uh, I really enjoy the experience of uh, speaking to the students, hearing what they're listening to, uh, you know, working through how they are trying to navigate understanding this history and this background. Uh, so it's really a lot of fun for me to do it. And, uh, and, and that's sort of what leads us here today. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. And in preparation for this, I watched your TED Talk from 2014, where you talked about how like modern technology and streaming has really made music really accessible for people, and even went on to say like people might even have as much as 15 days worth of music on their technology. What does your library sound like? Like your uh, your Spotify, your Apple Music, whatever your choice is. Sure. Well, it's funny because even since the TED Talk, of course, everything has changed. No one has 15 days of music on their uh, on their uh, on their phones anymore because you can stream whatever you want, whenever you want. Although, whatever you want is not really true. There's a lot of music that's not actually available on streaming services, but theoretically, you can listen forever, right? You know, my Spotify and my Apple Music, since I have both, are 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 filled with historical documents, obviously. They are filled with music of the past, since that's part of what I do uh, as someone who teaches 
about uh, the history of American popular music. So obviously that's all there. Uh, but so too is lots of contemporary music. I, I tend to make playlists of you know, every couple of weeks, actually, of whatever is out, just to try to keep up and keep track with what's going on. You know, part of what I talked about in that TED Talk is trying to keep up as you get older, and it's no longer as easy to hear new music as it once was. I mean, even with streaming, I mean, you can listen to new music, but to really know what's happening requires being part of the sort of social connections of the music world. And so you have to kind of keep that alive if you want to do it. So that's that's what I do. Uh, I really listen to a lot every every form of music in one form or another. Yeah, I feel pretty strongly that there's something to value from all of them. But obviously, because I teach about African American popular music, it's hip hop, R and B, uh, and the genres around that that are really at the center of my listening. Uh, but then plenty of rock, indie, alternative, metal, whatever you want to call it. Uh, lots of country music because I think it's really important to understand and listen to country music. Uh, and then, you know, a smattering of everything else. They all find their way into the mix at one point or another. Yeah, that is extremely fascinating to me. I was actually a music student here before I was a poli-sci student or a journalism cool. student. Where does your interest in these Black forms of music come from? I'm thinking like, you know, especially R&B, gospel, jazz. Where, where did that begin for you? Well, it began as a kid, predictably. Um you know, my, my mom had a bunch of R&B and rock and roll records from her childhood that I would listen to when I was younger or whatever she would happen to play in the car. And I'm, and I'm sure that that's the start of where my interest in all of this came. And then, you know, I, I was a kid who listened to the radio in bed, right? Or listened to uh, what would have been my Walkman to date me back in the day, um, you know, listening to whatever music was out and I was really drawn to R&B and drawn to hip hop. Those were the genres that I listened to a lot. Now they weren't exclusively, the, 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 again, the genres that I listened to. I just found myself really interested in music in general, all the different kinds of music, the different radio stations, the different formats, uh, and the power of course that the music had. So I would listen to a lot of the Spinners or Run DMC or Eric B and Rakim, uh, you know, uh, groups like that were all part of the mix in the late 70s and early 80s. And that's really where my interest in it grew. Uh, but I didn't really pursue it professionally, to be honest, even in graduate school. I mean, I, my undergraduate degrees were in history and, and political science at UW. So I'm an alumnus of the department. So it's a particular pleasure to be speaking to you today because of that. And I had uh, an ILS certificate. And, uh, you know, my, my graduate work was, was pretty purely in, in political and social history. And so the music side of it was something that was an escape for much of my, my life. It was something that I did on the outside of my academic work or related to it. I did some music criticism. I did some music writing. I did a lot of informal music writing. I had a, I had a, a, a music group that, that would meet online every January and we would trade back and forth a few thousand messages about the state of any given year in music. That's sort of how I kind of found my way into connections with other people who write about music for a living. And then when Craig Werner, who preceded me teaching the big cl uh, classes in Afro-Am, uh, decided to teach some smaller upper level classes and was looking for someone to fill in for him, he asked me to do it when I moved back to Madison. And I said, yes, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And so that's really the how the combination of my interest in music and the academic work that I'm doing came together. We listened to your interview with 
friend of the pod that we had on the summer, Steve Kantrowitz. We talked with him this summer, and I know you guys talked about white professors teaching black history. You're a white guy. You're from Shorewood. How, how does that play out now for you, especially in the classroom? How are you approaching that? Well, it's always an interesting part of the dynamic. I mean, anytime you are teaching about a subject that involves identity, then your identity becomes part of the story, uh, particularly for the students. And I'm certainly very well aware of that. What's sort of interesting about teaching the classes I teach, which are, you know, largely 100 or 200 level classes and uh, have no prerequisites and uh, fulfill the ethnic studies requirement is that I get every kind of student imaginable. I, I you know, it, it, as much as it's about me and my identity, it's also about the identity of the classroom. I have students who are deeply invested in the material. I have students who are not invested in the material, maybe don't know a lot about it, right? Uh, you know, it, it's easy to forget, but a lot of college students have not had an American history course since high school since sophomore year of high school and so you know you're, you're really managing a lot of different identities and a lot of different information bases when you start teaching which is all a kind of roundabout way of saying that my identity is certainly part of this but it's also part of the broader context of trying to bring a lot of different voices together and and what i hope that i'm able to when i do it is uh is to try to reach out to as many of those audiences as possible and you know, that's challenging because sometimes I have to make it very elementary and students who know a lot can get bored momentarily. And sometimes I have to reach to that higher level and the students who are coming in without a lot of knowledge have to try to figure out what I'm talking about. Um, true for any class, but it is acutely uh, noticeable in mine. That does extend to questions of race in the classroom. And that's where being a, a, a white person teaching about black music comes in. Because there are, you know, there are pluses and minuses to that experience for everybody. Uh, certainly, it would benefit many people in the room who, to have an African American professor who they've never had before, right? Uh, it potentially, which would which would be true for many students on UW campus in particular. Uh, for many African American students, it is understandably a source of frustration at times to take an Afro American studies class and and still have yet another white professor, which I, I certainly can sympathize with. There's no question that the experiences of being African-American uh, would bring a different voice into the conversation than my own. So these are all things I cannot bring to the table, right? And there's nothing I can do or should do to try to change that. On the other hand, there is value in being a white male uh, speaking about these issues. It's also something that a lot of students have never seen before. And, uh, and, and that can be uh, eye-opening in its own way, uh, whether they are African-American or not, uh, to hear that. Uh, and for many white students, uh, you know, there is certainly the possibility that I can connect to them at some cultural level and bring them into the conversation because uh, we come from a similar background. I mean, that, that is also part of it. Uh, so, so, you know, you, you, you try to think about all of the different ways in which you can, you know, work to your strengths in these situations and, you know, keep yourself open to listening to what the students want and what the students need. And ultimately, that's the most important thing that I can do to think about what all the students in the class, regardless of their ethnic background or racial background, um, what all the students in class are looking for in a class like this. And, and, and so I think that that's really how I kind of address it. You know, don't try to be something you're not. 
and and try to work to your strengths as much as possible, which in a sense is no different than what any other uh, professor does when they stand up in front of a classroom. With your research, you I know you argue a lot that what we listen to really matters and what we listen to is really deeply connected to our social interests and how we perceive the world. And that is especially true with Black music and Black history. Can you explain like why we listen to music, why that matters, and what why it matters what music we listen to? Sure. Although I certainly can't explain it all in the in the length of a podcast, but I can certainly talk about it. The thing to understand about music is that it is one of the oldest forms of communication that we have in human existence. It almost certainly predates the written word. And uh, well, I'm sure it does because we have evidence of instruments that predate the written word. Uh, and so it is a way in which human beings have communicated to one another for a long time about the things that they fear, the ways in which they express joy, uh, the passage of time, life and death. These are all things that have been part of our world through expressed through music as long as there has been human civilization. And so I think we need to respect that. And, and, and it's something that's easy to forget and lose sight of because we do think about music as entertainment. And it is entertainment, right? It's escapism, it's entertainment. It is a way to let us um, escape momentarily at times from the world that we are in, but it, it runs much, much deeper than that. And so when I think about why we listen to music, yes, it is about rest and escapism and entertainment, but it's also about understanding and it's also about connection, how we find a way to understand one another, to hear the experiences of someone else uh, and, and to connect with that, right? To find a way in which our own experiences connect with theirs through the emotions, the words, the sounds that the music conveys. And in the case of African-American history and music, music has been central to, to the ways in which African-Americans have been able to express themselves historically uh, in North America. And there's a fundamental reason for that. And it's that, first of all, music was a central way in which those who were brought from Africa expressed themselves in Africa, right? And so, and so this is this is in one sense in, in West Africa in particular through the griots, it is it is one way in which uh, that cultural tradition survived. But even more pointedly, because these enslaved people were denied their basic rights and opportunities in American society, they didn't have any way to express their their politics. They didn't have any any way to do that uh, through conventional means, right? They didn't have citizenship. Uh, they scarcely had their humanity uh, in the eyes uh, of many in American society. They did not have access to the vote uh, or for running for political office. They, they, they didn't have access to capital. So even in places where African-Americans were free, they didn't have, you know, enough money to buy a newspaper or, or even work at a newspaper, right? They wouldn't have that opportunity because of discrimination. And so... For all of these reasons, those channels, while they do open up over time, were largely closed off. And so if you wanted to express your view of the world, your, your view of the, of the human condition and of your own condition, music was a way to do that. I mean, there's a reason why the slave owners banned drums, and it was because they didn't want the slaves to, to communicate with one another from one plantation to another. So, so they understood that music was a powerful means of communication and African-Americans have always used communication in that way. And so when you look at the history of African-American music and the role that it plays in our lives, 
yes, it has been about entertainment and new sounds and new beats, but it is very much about expressing one's identity, expressing one's own sense of community and society. And, uh, and that has been consistent throughout the centuries all the way up to the present day. Yeah, that, that last point especially I think is super interesting about how slave owners would ban drums and just uh, I've got this crazy little fact stuck in my head. I used to play in a steel band, like playing steel. Uh, yeah. And that, so that is native to Trinidad and Tobago. And the entire reason that we have steel, like steel instruments today is because slave owners in Trinidad and Tobago banned their instruments, tambu bamboo, and then banned their drums. So then they made instruments out of what they had, the oil drums. And I think that is a, is a great, it's amazing. It speaks, I mean, it's a great story and it speaks great directly to what I'm talking about, right? You, you make what you can out of the space that you have and you use it to find your own voice, right? Even, even if it's in a system and a structure of uh, uh, repression, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the black gospel music tradition comes out of a very similar set of circumstances that the, that, that the enslaved Africans who were brought to North America were introduced to Christianity, you know, largely as a as a means of social and cultural control to use Christianity as a kind of hierarchical way in which to tell those enslaved peoples that they are, this is their allotted place in society. But what those enslaved peoples learned was that there were also stories in the Bible about uh, emancipation and about freedom. And they and they took to those stories instead, and and so they found a way to resist the narrative that they were being taught, and and incorporated it into their own quest for liberation. So yes, absolutely, uh, that kind of give and take is a, a longstanding part of the story. Absolutely, and so that kind of feeds directly into what I want to talk about next. You you cite Ralph Ellison, best known for his novel Invisible Man, a lot, and he's got this really awesome quote that's. Music is autobiographical chronicle of personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. And I think that that is such a poignant and pointed explanation for music and especially for, you know, music that was used to empower and music that was used to unite African-Americans. Uh, do you want to talk at all about your citation of Ralph Ellison and what that kind of means to you? Sure. Well, first, let me say that my citation of Ralph Ellison comes via Craig Werner, who taught the class before me and who writes about the blues impulse, the gospel impulse and the jazz impulse in his book, A Change is Going to Come, uh, which is the textbook for 156, because he's the one who taught it first and wrote the book on the, on the class. Uh, and he's the one who really took Ellison's story of the blues impulse and translated it into the space that I use in my course. So I, all the credit to him for that. But uh, uh, to answer your question directly, there are certain big stories, feelings, emotions, narratives that emerge time and time again in African-American culture that get expressed through African-American art, including music. And that idea of expressing this sense of catastrophe lyrically is what the blues impulse is all about. It's about trying to manage the pain that you are experiencing. And, and doing that by getting it out, putting it in your music. Uh, and you do that in a kind of uh, near tragic, near comic way. And what that means is that you express this pain 
and this heartache. And, and really when it comes to the blues impulse, you sort of accept that that's just the way things are, that there's just gonna be this pain in life and that's the best you can do. Uh, but also to deal with it in a near comic way, which is to say that, you know, I have to laugh this out, off or I can't work to function tomorrow. If, if, I, if I, you know, assume all of this pain all the time, I will be paralyzed. And so I have to find a way to laugh it off. It's comic as humor, but it's also comic as joy, uh, dancing, singing, uh, finding some kind of sense of community. The other impulses which Craig really outlined were the gospel and jazz impulses, and, and that's, about, that's about trying to find a way to really bring those communities together. The gospel impulse says that we can, we can perfect this world that we have made, that we have ideas and aspirations and rules that if we live up to them, we can, you know, if not perfect, at least improve society. In other words, the blues impulse sort of says this is just the way things are. The gospel impulse says, well, well, we can we can do better. And in the sense in the way the way in which that connects between music and politics is to say that much of the freedom movement in African American history is about saying, well, we have the Declaration of Independence and we have the Constitution and we have the Bill of Rights and we have all of these documents that espouse a certain sense of what America aspires to and claims that it is, uh, but we don't have those freedoms. We don't have those rights. We don't have that kind of participation in American society in the same way, but, but we could potentially live up to them if we're willing to try to do that. And so that's why the gospel element of, of Black music is such a, an important part of the, of the civil rights era in particular. It really was about saying, are we going to live up to this or not? And then finally, just briefly, that jazz side of things, the jazz impulse, is not, is not merely about saying that we can live up to what we uh, claim we are. It's about saying we can be something even, even greater. We can be something altogether different. Uh, and if you think about the great jazz musicians over time, or those artists who just think in that kind of jazz way, whether it's a funk musician like George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic, or, or a hip-hop artist like Eric B. and Rakim, you know, you you try to imagine the world in a different way so that the preconceptions that we have uh, are not good enough and, and you dig deeper and try to rethink things. And that, you know, usually doesn't work, but when it does, it changes the world. And so these are the, these are, these are sort of broadly speaking in the way that I teach about this material, uh, the different ways in which African-American music, culture, and politics all interact with one another. What I find fascinating about these is that they are all so uniquely American and they they're born in America out of strife. And now, you know, you, you see you see jazz and you see blues, you see it in every modern genre. You know, you don't have modern pop without jazz. You don't have modern R&B and hip hop without blues. You don't even have country without blues. And I think that that is so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, obviously, those impulses that that Ellison are is talking about and that that Craig Werner is talking about are not limited to the American experience, right? I mean, pain and hardship and, and wanting to transcend your pain and hardship are, are, are in no way limited. And one of the reasons why though that music is so powerful is because it speaks to the experiences that people have in other parts of the world. Hip hop has become the voice of the voiceless all over the world in many different manifestations. But there's no question that it is very much grounded in the experience of African-Americans in the United States. So, so, you know, 
that's what makes black music so interesting and so so powerful and dynamic which is that it it very much is telling the story of a specific culture and a specific society but it is it is malleable enough that it can incorporate different sounds different people different ideas into it and i don't think it's coincidence then that that music has become globally powerful as a result you know the the specific experiences of african americans are very much um, what drives how this music changes over time, but it's always an interplay with other cultures and other people, whether it was the British invasion in the 1960s, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, reggae music in Jamaica in, in the 60s and 70s, whether it's uh, British dance music in the 1990s. I mean, you can go down the list uh, of all these different kinds of forms of interaction that that exist within African-American culture. And again, that has what been what has made it so so powerful it, it's interesting that you mentioned how deeply this music has burrowed into every form of american music because in in a certain sense i kind of have to teach that uh, i kind of have to teach what improvisation means and why it came out of the african-american tradition or the call and response because it is so prevalent in our culture now everywhere that it seems like it's just there like it just exists but of course it has a history and that history is based in african-american music and culture so with your class and with your teaching I, as i was doing my research I, I found this quote about your class that you you're you say that your hip-hop class is an opportunity to recontextualize the story of race relations in a way that is political but not strictly speaking about politics can you talk about what you mean by that sure so uh I do want to say what I don't mean by that is that it's a class about politics, right? That it's taking music and turning it into a class about contemporary politics or, or anything like that. Although certainly those issues come up in the class. What I really mean by that is that I want students who take my classes to understand the meaning of this music beyond its function as entertainment. Uh, you know, a lot of students come into any class about about popular music and think they're taking clap for credit, right? Think they're just going to, it's going to be kind of music appreciation and that's what it's going to be. There's a lot of joy in the music and in the class to, to be sure. But what I, I really want them to understand is that this music has a history, that this music has a context, that it doesn't come out of nowhere, that when the sound of young America comes out of Motown. Yeah, it's about a kind of capitalist desire to make money and, and to be a successful record label, but it's also an attempt to describe black greatness and black joy and to express black joy in the context of repression and also in the, in the context of a civil rights movement that is fighting for, in the end, for, for white America to acknowledge the humanity of black America, right? And in, in all of its complexity. And, and, and that's what the music was about. So, so you have that happening in the 1960s, or you have the birth of hip hop and the way in which it comes out of the social and political conditions of the Bronx in the 1970s, uh, a time when, when cities were struggling, when they were in, in the midst of fiscal crisis, when politically, uh, the debate in the country was, you know, shifting towards the interests of people in suburban America, a largely white uh, population, and and, the, and 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 people of color felt abandoned or like the, the the promise of the civil rights movement had not been met, and a younger generation in particular was looking for a way to find its voice, 
And so they, they use hip hop as a way to find their voice first as a form of escapism and then as a way to articulate the experiences that they are having. These are the ways in which I, I, I talk about how this music is political and, and, and want students to understand that if they truly want to experience this music and all of its grandeur, this is how you do it, right? It's not, it's not just that it's a witty turn of phrase or a fun beat, although without either of those, the music doesn't work, but, but that it's something even more than that. With hip hop and with black music, there are a lot of misconceptions about it. There are definitely a lot of people that look at it and listen to it and think, oh, this is only about violence. This is only about sex, drugs. Or what would you say to people that maybe need a little bit more help getting into the music and understanding the actual meaning behind it? Well, the first thing that I would tell them as a historian is that the history of hip hop is a history of largely trying to evade violence and to evade those experiences. And I, I and, and by evade, I don't mean not acknowledge them. I, I mean, to actually find a way to to actually find a way to navigate the world without things falling to violence. And, and, and here's what I mean. You know, in sound system culture in Jamaica and then in the Bronx, when hip hop emerges, there was gang warfare in Kingston and in the Bronx. And hip hop really served as a way to communicate between groups, uh, to resolve conflicts uh, among rival gangs, for example, without resorting to violence, that having a battle between two MCs or DJs was a way to resolve a conflict between competing communities over a, par a, a territory, a park, or whatever it is without having violence. The same was true of the b-boys, the breakdancers who would have their battles at times. That may all seem a little bit corny uh, to the uninitiated, but you know, think about how much energy human society uh, exerts to come up with peaceful ways to resolve conflicts and all of the different ways in which we do that, uh, you know, to, to try to have a treaty instead of uh, simply resorting to killing one another. And this is just another way for people to do it within the space that they had. Even gangster rap and even a lot of the hyper violent hip hop that existed was usually being created as a means to tell the world that this terrible situation existed and that and that they're not paying attention and that they need to pay attention i mean nwa was very much part of that ice t was that was doing that uh through his music now it's absolutely tied up in other kinds of power dynamics uh in terms of misogyny in terms of homophobia, the hyperviolence is certainly there. Uh, the, the, at times, glorification of the drug trade is there, but there's also a vilification of the drug trade that's very much part of it. And, and that's all about power. All of that's about power. It's about, you know, what power do you have over your environment, over your body? Uh, you know, who can you have power over if you feel powerless in society otherwise? That's what we should all be listening for when we hear all of that, not a way to sort of condemn those who articulate it, but rather to kind of say, well, why? Why are they articulating that? And, and the only other thing I want to mention is that there's a way in which uh, there's a racialization of this criticism as well, right? That hip hop gets criticized for this all the time. But of course, there's endemic violence in metal 
and there have been moments of rampant misogyny and homophobia in 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 metal uh country music for much of its history especially its early history had all kinds of stories about murder and drug use that were that were very much part of its history and today you can't play country radio for five minutes without hearing about someone getting drunk so a lot of it is about the kind of socialization that we all have in terms of what we consider acceptable or unacceptable what's what's long way to talk about a gun or to talk about violence and and that's what i would encourage people to do is to, is to try to listen for that because ultimately one of the one of the points I, I i try to convey in my classes is that you need to listen to music to understand other people it's not enough to just say well what does this do for me but it's also worth saying well why are they creating this music and even more to the point who's listening to this and why do they care about it? Why does it matter to them? Why does it speak to their experiences? And if you do that, if you do that, then you have the potential to better understand those other people. You have, a, you have the potential to better understand what their life experiences are like. And in, the, in, a, in a climate as polarized as our own, it is, it is a valuable, valuable skill to have to be able to listen empathetically for what other, to what other people are experiencing. Are there any specific albums, projects, artists that you really key in on in your class? Well, it depends on the class, obviously. Uh, you know, the, the and I'll I'll be as brief as I can because, you know, lecturers have a way of lecturing. Um, Afro M two seventy two focuses on the emergence of the civil rights movement. Uh, and the period directly after the civil rights movement. So the 1960s and 1970s are the heart of it, but it does go through the 80s to the present. And it does start all the way back in 1619. Uh, I actually start two of my three classes with a kind of dizzying lecture that goes over a couple hundred years, uh, which I do because, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of students who simply haven't had American history in a long time, or in the case of students from other countries have never had it. Uh, so it does reach across a pretty wide stretch of time. Uh, 156, the black music class really starts in the mid 1940s and it, and it, it doesn't include jazz and that's a complicated question. Uh, one that I think in, in my case comes down to time and narrative that jazz obviously is interacting with all of this other music that I'm, I'm talking about over time, but it's also has a very much its own story and, and also it has been taught in other, it, it's taught in other classes. So, so there's sort of a separation there, but you know, my story really goes from the mid 40s with the blues and with gospel and then shifts all the way into rock and roll, R&B, soul, funk, disco, uh, hip hop and everything going on all, all the way to the present. As a historian, I always have to resist the temptation to cut out the present uh, and make sure that it gets in there because it's 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 the payoff in a sense for the class. Right. How does all of this music we've been talking about? How does it express itself in the present day? So that means, you know, Motown and Stax and Elvis uh, and and Aretha Franklin and and Curtis Mayfield and and then you know George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic and and disco and Run DMC as I said and Grandmaster Flash and all of those folks uh, that are all part of the story. And of course, with hip hop in the hip hop class, what you get is a is a is a somewhat more uh, detailed version of the story of hip-hop itself so those are really how the classes are structured absolutely and with the time we have left i just want to ask a couple more questions and one in particular about a certain artist that has been in the news lately kanye west is an extremely noteworthy hip-hop artist an extremely noteworthy musician producer he's got some of the most highly acclaimed albums of all time but 
he has not necessarily been the most politically correct person or politically correct musician recently. How how do you see Kanye West kind of playing into um, this narrative, uh, the narrative of black music and how how it all fits into our modern context? So he, Kanye West is a obviously a fascinating cultural figure and an important one in, in a certain sense. You know, no other solo hip hop artist has ever had the kind of sustained success that Kanye West has had, both in terms of commercial appeal and cultural relevance. You know, he he had a string of, you know, seven or eight albums in a row where he was always doing something differently and was success, hugely successful with it in terms of pushing the culture. And so his place in the pantheon of American hip hop artists is uh, is high. And we'll, we'll, we'll remain there be, simply because of what he has already done, no matter what he does from this point forward. Here's what I would say about Kanye West. I think that Kanye, I mean, he talked about this in the past. Kanye, Kanye sees himself, or at least did, see himself as opening up spaces for African-American creativity and freedom. He, he would talk about how he perceived what he was doing and perceived his art as a means to open up channels for African-Americans to express themselves, to show what's possible, right? And to not be afraid of having to limit what you can do. And that has very much been part of the African-American musical tradition, whether it's Louis Armstrong and jazz or Ornette Coleman a few generations later, uh, breaking, pushing the boundaries of what jazz music would sound like, you know, Parliament Funkadelic with funk breaking most of the rules of pop music and still creating pop music, hip hop reimagining what what an instrument is by turning a turntable into an instrument. So pushing those boundaries has always been there and it has always been a way to show the potential of the black experience. And it's a reflection of the fact that African-Americans have had to improvise in the same way that you were talking about the steel drum, that you have to come up with new and creative ways to do things if you want to survive. So he's very much part of that tradition. What I would say connects to the present day is that he's also in certain ways a, a radical individualist, that, that he believes in opening up avenues for each person as a person to express themselves as broadly as they possibly can, to break the rules if, the, if, if they feel that, that, that that's the way to express themselves, and, and that it's unlocking that individual potential that is part of what he wants people to experience and is also his own experience, right? I mean, his experience is that I can break the rules and I can create something totally new and succeed at it time and time again. So it really shouldn't surprise us that Kanye West is drawn to a political figure who broke a lot of rules and succeeded, right? And, and that kind of radical sense of individualism is very much the American capitalist story of rising, you know, uh, from modest means to great success. Uh, but it is also one that has been specific to hip hop. And, and so you can see how these worlds are interacting and intertwining, and he can, he can see himself in the context of of rabble rousers, of rule breakers. And so I, I think that's the context within which to understand him. Beyond that, you know, I, I, I'm hesitant to speak to anything about his personal experience or his personal condition because we don't know what that is. And, and, and whatever we hear may or may not be true. Uh, but I do know that that's the broader context 
of his music and his career and that it makes sense uh, to think about those things if you're trying to understand where he is now. We can end on a hopeful note. You know, technology and ever since the, the advent of streaming, breaking down barriers in people's music listening bubbles has just become so much easier. How do you, how do you see the, the advent of streaming continuing to break down musical barriers between people? Well, I would say this. First of all, it is easy to forget because we just are living in the moment that we now have this unprecedented access to an enormous amount of music that people like me spent decades collecting and spending money and digging for a music collection that anybody has access to in an, in an instant now and has access to in a global way. And I think the biggest difference between downloading mp3s and streaming is now the global nature of how you can hear music that because you can really dip your toe into anything you want for any period of time for a flat fee uh it, it has meant that there is this kind of cross-pollination that is happening at an incredible speed uh and and across so many cultures that's why you know you now have so many spanish language songs that for the first time have finally started to consistently hit the charts even if they get no conventional radio airplay now, I do want to add one thing about this. Musicians are getting paid almost nothing for this. And, and now that we are in the midst of a pandemic, the music industry is in shambles. And it is an industry. Uh, it, is a, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. And, and one of the pernicious things about treating music as mere entertainment is that we don't take it seriously, both as an art form or even, it turns out, as a business, right? People want to bail out the airlines and they want to bail out the oil companies, but they don't want to bail out an industry that's one of the largest in the United States uh, and, and the most lucrative in the United States. Uh, and that industry is one that the artists depend upon to live. So I do want to say that because I do think that, that for all of the joy that all of us are gaining out of streaming, uh, the artists are not making money off of it. And it's something that has to be dealt with if we really want the kind of rich cultural world that we enjoy to continue to exist. But that said, uh, this this exchange of cultural expression is there and it is really valuable. And I think it is a way in which younger generations in particular are able to hear one another and experience what one another are listening to. And again, there's nothing really new about that. I mean, in the 1920s, blues musicians were listening to country artists and country artists were listening to blues musicians. And that has happened at every period in American history. But it is happening at a volume level and and just with a kind of broadness that didn't necessarily exist before. And so I think that's a reason for a lot of uh, optimism. But I do want to add one caveat to that before I finish up. And that is that we have access to all of this, but it still requires effort. And it still requires intention to really hear music that is different than, than what you're comfortable with. Because these streaming services are working through algorithms that are encouraging us to go back and keep listening to the music that we already listen to, variations on a theme. And, and also in an ironic sort of way, although we now have access to all this music, in some ways we're all listening to the same few songs even more than we did before. And there's a positive element to that, which is that when you're all listening to the same songs, there's this sort of common culture that emerges from it that allows us to speak to one another. But it, there's also a downside, which is that you're not listening to new music. You're not listening to music that is 
different than what you've heard before. So, you know, my advice to everyone thinking about that is that if you really want to fulfill this promise that streaming provides to hear all of this different music and all these different sounds, it, it's time to just click on a playlist you would never click on. Like just, just pick them at random, you know, like go, go find something that you would look at the one that you would never look at and then click on that because this is all intentional. Right. And, and play that for a while because that'll open your ears up in a way that, that simply, you know, sticking into in the same cycle will not. And, you know, listen, we're all short on time and I, you know, I'm as guilty as anyone at times of not doing that, but it's vital if you really want the promise of all of this to be fulfilled. That is an excellent maxim to leave us off on. Thank you so much for joining us today, professor. Thanks. It was a pleasure to be here. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely. For now. <laughs>